0: Hello, everyone. Today I'm joined by Jordan Westendorf. Jordan, thank you so much
1: for being here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with discussing your political
1: socialization.
0: While growing up, did you talk about politics often with family or with friends or at school?
1: Not significantly before 2016. Um, my, My parents would watch the news on election night. Um, they'd usually vote in general elections, but not primaries. And they were aware of politics insofar as how it affected their lives and their business. Um, but they, they, they did not, uh, they were not politically active in any significant sense. Uh, and nor was I, um, my mom was a little bit more left-leaning. My dad was much more business focused, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, I grew up in Orange County, California, which is um, a um, conservative hub in California, but a very fiscal conservative, Um, so it's much more socially liberal, and that's sort of how my parents also operated. Mm. Yeah, I know. That makes a ton of sense. So I guess what happened um, after 2016 or what kind of changed? Well, after 2016, um, I was... 16. And um, mm. so I couldn't vote, but I remember watching the election uh, returns that night and thinking, oh, my God, what is this? Because I remember supporting Hillary in the general, not having followed anything in either primary. And um, was I was really excited to have a, a woman as president. And I thought Trump was absolutely abhorrent um, mm. and so I remember watching the returns and thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. And then over the course of that year, you just, I start, I started really reading the news so much more and thinking, what is going on here? At the same time, I was, you know, starting to get into more upper level history classes where politics is, you know, runs through everything. Um, my junior year, which would have been 2016 and 17, I believe, uh, No, that was my, oh, I I don't know. Um, (laughs) My junior year, though, I took uh, AP U.S. government, and so I was, you know, watching, I, I, you know, started to get to know things then. Um, I took some um, college classes over the summer in um, uh, international relations and comparative political systems, um, and I did a whole lot of model UN and debate, and those even became more, domestic politic uh, focused, uh, particularly debate after mm-hmm. 2016. So all of that together just made me have to pay attention a lot more. And in paying attention, I found a, a deep, deep interest in it and almost like a, a calling towards it.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And a little more specifically, how do the people around you speak about the, quote, government when you were growing up, positively or negatively?
1: almost always negatively, but almost always mm-hmm. negatively in the sense of, of taxes. Um, like I said, Orange County is very business focused. Um, and, and they're, you know, with, with Trump and the polarization, they've become more like typically right wing, um, but very business focused. So very anti-tax, uh, anti-regulation. And so government was always portrayed negatively. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, as I was sort of coming, my, my political social socialization, part of that was just recognizing what government did and how it functioned for real in our lives um, and, and sort of realizing that government was not bad.
0: Mm-hmm. And since you grew up in a more conservative area, did you find your ideas, especially as they were changing, lining up with your peers or maybe even your
1: teachers? <laughs> um, some of my peers, yes. Some of my peers, no. Um, generally, teachers were on board with, with where I was, um, and, and parents were not. Um, I went mm-hmm. to a private school, and so parents were, were much more conservative than the average teacher, um, but there definitely was crossover on both sides. Um, some of my very close friends, their parents were politically active, and that's also how I, I was getting involved um we ran like registration drives with the help <clears throat> of one of the librarians um who I came to really get to know well um and she definitely lined up politically with me um And then other people were just absolutely against what we were doing um, and and sort of what my my political stances were. I do remember I had this one um, Latin teacher in 10th grade. Um, This was right after Trump was elected. So, like, the the election was that November. And I had a friend in that class who was working um, as an intern in the congressional office for a Republican member of Congress either that year or the year before but she was very liberal and we'd show up to this class. We had no other classes together. Um, We were good friends, but we weren't like, we didn't hang out really outside of class, Um, but we'd show up to class. We'd spend the first like five minutes, like to get out your homework. Like there was nothing productive being done, um, Mm -hmm. but but that like first five minutes of class, just going off on whatever Trump had done recently. Like that was, that was all we did. (laughs) And this teacher at one point stopped us and told us, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And it was very clear in that moment, and in other comments, that she was a, she was much more conservative. She was, I would imagine, a Trump supporter. And so, you know, you had it on both ends uh, at my school. You kind of had to know who your audience was. And in that case, my friend, great audience. My teacher, not so great. Yeah, that's a pretty funny story.
0: So now I'd like to speak more broadly about our economic systems. Do you have a specific memory of first coming into contact with the concept of capitalism?
1: I don't have a specific memory. Um, it has always been, and and still is, a tension within my my par- like with my parents and I, and with definitely extended family. Of you know, is capitalism good or bad, mm-hmm. or where does it fall on that spectrum? Um, and so, I don't have a particular first memory of it. Um, but it was definitely always capitalism was portrayed as a good thing. Capitalism would, you know, was portrayed as like going to save our country and it was going to, you know, regulate the markets and stop climate change. And that was, you know, only kind of real to begin with. And um, the free markets would take care of it all. Um, So capitalism Mm. was definitely a good thing. And I didn't have a strong opinion on that. I just sort of like, like, for a while in high school as part of my political social, socialization. Um, mm. And I just, you know, would kind of go along with it in the back of my head. It was like, this doesn't feel super right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, over the years, I've been able to say much more clearly that like regulated capitalism can be good, but capitalism, like people in this country argue for pure capitalism doesn't work. Um, but that's mm-hmm. a very recent development for me that I've, you know, come to that conclusion and come to that belief.
0: Could you say more about those conversations with your peers?
1: Um, my current um, roommate now uh, is, is you know, politically active, but she takes a different view on politics, not, not left-right, but sort of like how we should go about it. And so um, we'll watch a movie and two characters will have an argument and we will then rehash the same argument and very much come to a, a you know agree to disagree sort of sort of position. But in the process, you may know, you learn a lot from your from talking it through and from thinking it through on your own side and hearing from the other person and trying to fit how two perspectives can be similar but different and where you can agree to disagree and where one of these probably wrong. Um, so I I don't have a particular experience that I I I can think of off the top of my head. Just to say that these conversations happen to me literally everywhere and anywhere, in any context, um, and definitely a lot outside the classroom. Mm
0: -hmm. Now I'd like to focus in on how you view a government's responsibilities and duties to its citizens. First, we have the example of New Zealand and its budgetary model from 2019 that focused on the, quote, well-being of its citizens rather than uh, more traditional economic goals. And my question about New Zealand is: Do you view this budgetary model as desirable for the U.S.? And if
1: it's desirable, is it attainable? Yeah. So um, I think that it. I think that in this country, in the U.S., we put a lot of emphasis on the economy and economic growth, uh, mm-hmm. almost to the expense of, um, of, of literally anything else. And so I I think that, you know, New Zealand, I don't think that their budget is that these five goals are, um, attainable in the U S in a political sense. Like, I just don't think that you'd be able to pass something that has these goals Mm -hmm. in the U S because of, um, lobbyists and special interests that have the ear of members of Congress much more than, um, individual citizens do. So even though the, the majority of people might agree with this, it wouldn't happen, um, and so I think that it, it is good that we prioritize things that are that improve the well-being of individual citizens, not corporations or lobbyists or um, special interests. However, I don't think it's really attainable in the United States because of the, like the, like I said, those special interests. Um, I think that at, we should be moving more towards a citizen um, or or an individual, not even citizen, but an individual focused um, uh, budget where we take into account what a person needs to live and what a person needs, not just to, to survive in the sense of they are a living, breathing organism, but they can thrive in our society. Um, we have huge inequality and, and that's only continuing to be exacerbated by the current pandemic and, and other economic factors in this country are, our tax code among, among other things. And so, um, You know, I think that we definitely should be focusing more on the well-being of citizens. And I think that New Zealand should be applauded for doing this. Um, I just don't think it's feasible in the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. And this next question is pretty relevant to what you're saying. The U.S. has immense income and wealth inequality, particularly along racial lines. And I'd like to know how you view the U.S. government's role in relation to this situation. Should it make reducing income inequality a priority? And if the government does so, are there any
1: potential drawbacks? Yes, one hundred percent. Because again, the, the the argument on the other side of the government shouldn't do this is that the free market will do this. Well, we've let the free market kind of do whatever the hell it wants for a long time now, and it clearly has only made this worse, not better. Um, you know, a lot. There's a lot of policies in place, and, and I. Do not claim to be an expert on this, um, and and I could not name all of them if you gave me the internet and unlimited time and said go. I, I it's it's simply too complicated.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Having
1: said that, though, um, there are very clear um, inequalities that are built into the way that this country functions. Like I said, the tax code, uh, like the way um, campaigns are run, for example, um, by having by co- having campaigns cost so much out of individual um, b- and having to raise money from individuals um, and having such high, the ability for individuals and corporations to give so much money um, in, in kind of shady ways, you make those government officials less responsive to people than to the special interests. And so they don't represent people as much as they should, which then can fo- like feed into this where You aren't making policies that benefit individuals, but large corporations or or, um, wealthy people who pay less in in percentage of their income than uh, lower income individuals. Well, that means that you, you know, if you're at a higher income bracket, you don't, um, the amount of money you need to actually survive, the percentage of your income is much, much lower than if you're in a very low income bracket that changes a lot of things. And so having to expect a lower income bracket to pay more in a percentage of their, their uh, income and in taxes versus a higher uh, income bracket, that is ridiculous, frankly, in, in real taxes. I'm saying not, not in mm-hmm. you know, what they yeah. say is the amount with, you know, loopholes and everything like that. So it's um, I absolutely think it's within the government's purview and responsibility to do this. Um, have they done it? Not yet. Has it only gotten worse? Yes. Um, But absolutely, it it should be part of of what the government um, does and responds to. Mm,
0: Great. And you mentioned earlier that the government should be providing things that people cannot just survive but thrive. And within that vein, do you view things like housing or healthcare as commodities or as human rights? If you view them as commodities, how can the free market increase access to them? if you view them as human rights, is the U.S. government equipped to secure health care or housing for all?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, and it's a sort of a potentially loaded question. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that the government, I think I think that, that everyone has a, the basic human right to have health care that will cover them if they, you know, break their leg and they need to go to the emergency room, or they, you know, need to have emergency surgery, or if they need to just see a doctor for a regular checkup. If you want to start talking about healthcare that covers, you know, braces, that might be more where you get into a commodity space, um, rather than just like basic necessities. Um, same thing for, for housing. I think that everyone deserves to have, you know, heating, uh, air conditioning or heating and air conditioning, you know, depending on on where you are and, and what degree to which you need that. Um, um, but you know, a roof over your head, um, You know, running water, clean running water, um, uh, uh, plumbing, things like that. Like every person deserves to have those basic necessities met in in a in a decent fashion. Um, Does everyone deserve to have you know a ten million dollar beachside mansion? Is that a human right? No, that's a commodity. So there's there's you know a level at which I I believe the government has a responsibility to ensure the basic. Necessities, or to at least provide the service, like support the services that will provide those basic necessities and make getting out of the crushing, get out of crushing poverty and crushing debt, making that better, making that more feasible. Um, right now, if you fall into just a complete, uh, uh, if you fall uh, homeless, um, and and you can't get back on your feet. It's really hard to break out of that. It's really really hard to get back on your feet, and and to be able to continue to move forward in this country, even if you want to, even if you're you're you know trying to get a job or you have a job but you live out of your car. Um, you you know that that part's really difficult, and we're not good at that, and we don't make that easy. We make it incredibly difficult. I think. The government has a, has a duty to the citizens and to the people, all people in this country, to make that so much easier to get back on your feet and, and to have these basic necessities like housing, like running water, like food, to have those along the way. Because no child in, in the 21st century America should be hungry. That is completely ludicrous if you say, well, the market should control that. That's wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned earlier that your roommate views government and its relationship to social change a little bit differently than you do. And I'm wondering, why do you view government as a good avenue or productive avenue for social change as opposed to, for example, being an activist or working for a nonprofit?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, my roommate is a, is a justice and peace studies major. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so she is the, the activist model kind of through and through, and she thinks the government's important, but she's much more of an activist. Uh, I think that activism is important, and I'm much more of a, you know, I'm a government major. I believe in, you know, the power of, of elections and elected office and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of the two sides of, of where you're saying, you're taking me back to a lot of arguments or discussions, but not angry, but the discussions we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I... um. I I believe that government is ultimately the the one that has to make this change and to legislate this change. Um, And, you know, being an activist is not unimportant. You have to push and prod your your elected officials to the ends of this earth for them to do anything. And and so I absolutely think that activism is incredibly important in that space. However, if you don't elect uh, officials, in Congress and in your local government and your school board, your governor, like, you know, run all the way top to bottom. Um, if you don't elect, a, elect officials who are going to be responsive to that, nothing's ever going to get done. And so and that's why I think that elections and, and governing is so incredibly important. Um, I just fundamentally don't believe that you can actually um, make this change without, in a, in a lot of ways, legislating it. I think that that can be a first step if you're trying to have a cultural revolution in this sense. But I think it's very hard to have a cultural re- revolution absent of any real um, laws and, and legislation that can be written down and, and codified and um, enforced by the court. Um, so that's sort of why I would take uh, gover- governing, but in, in particular sense, elections um, so mm-hmm. seriously. All right, well, that is my last question,
0: and that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for being here, Jordan. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Well, thank you again for having me, um, and good luck on, on this project.